0: Welcome to all of you who are here with us this morning. We have a joyous occasion to open the Word of God again, so please open it to John chapter 4, verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Foundational verse in understanding what worship truly is. My goal is to get to John 4 and i always have more notes than I, I i need and so i will cut out a little bit of my illustrations to get to that passage this morning we continue to consider the distinctive of worship last week we last week we briefly looked at the problem of emotionalism in worship and i hope i was clear that emotion is not emotionalism it's an excess Expression of emotion or where emotion controls the individual. So I hope that was clear. It's emotion in itself, when it is a right response to the word of God or God is not bad in and of itself. This morning we're going to look at two more problems in the area of worship. Number one, existentialism big word and experience a more familiar word. Existentialism relates to how we act as individuals in worship. There's a correlating aspect to that. And so I'm going to look at those two things which um, deals with existentialism. I'll explain it uh, later on. And then experience, which is probably the most um, problematic aspect of worship today. The subject of experience, because it's so subjective and so very personal. And so I want to be sensitive, but also um, immovable in the sense in which God explains what experience is. The extreme of existentialism. I'm not giving you an introduction, I'm continuing with last week's sermon. So if you are waiting for an introduction, listen to last week's sermon. There you go, that's my introduction. What is existentialism? In existentialism, human beings determine reality. Part one. So all you need to know for now is that you get to determine what truth is or what reality looks like. Ever heard the phrase, my truth? Or oh, Well, that can be true to you, but that's not true for me. That's the result of existentialism, also known as the subcategory of postmodernism. Existentialism as a philosophy, system, or worldview is really wide in scope. I'm going to zoom in on two things number one, individualism, and number two, deconstructionism which is the parallel to post-modernism. I'm using a lot of philosophical terms, but I hope you can you can follow along. Um, and, and there's a reason why I'm doing this. So, number one, in the individualism, there is this thing called Christian existentialism. This is seen in the language of the leap of faith. Ever heard that before? All you need to do is, is take a leap of faith, man. Just, just, Believe. That's all you need to do. Or my personal journey with the Lord. I have my walk with Jesus Christ. Oh really? I don't see that in scripture. Or what about I had a private experience with the Lord. Or we all have free will. Oh, now I'm stepping on toes. If your toes get red, I make no apologies. All of these expresses individualistic influence. And the reason why I don't make apologies is because scripture clearly discounts all of these. Existential worship says that I have my own personal experience with the Lord and therefore do not need to commit to a church. While that individual may go to church fellowship, they are not invested in any specific community. So they go from church to church and where they get the most out of a sermon or a service. That's where they will stay the longest until it runs dry. Then they just keep on moving. They are like spiritual bees looking for the best next nectar. They are not invested in any specific community because what is fundamental to them is their individual experience over committing to a community. They don't commit. They don't want to be members. They don't want They want the reward and the benefit of being in a church community without saying, you are my family. On the other hand, some of them don't even go to meet with God's people. With the advent of online church or streaming services, there are statements such as the following. Why read my Bible at home? I have my gospel music I listen to. Or, I have my favorite preacher. And they may be good. The music, the preacher, and the Bible reading system may actually be good and sound. And you may be faithfully doing that. But you as an individual have forsaken the fellowship of the saints. That is in total contradiction to scripture. Because the Bible clearly says, let us not abandon the meeting together of the saints. Why do they need fellowship then? I mean, as an individual, they are completely catered for in this Christian world. This is the result of the influence of individualism in the church. More and more. There's a sentiment that I have my personal relationship and my personal walk with Christ. I dare you to find the language in scripture. There is no such thing as a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You are personally called to be in a community. Always the community is highlighted. Even the nation of Israel. When Ruth... And, and Rahab, as individuals who were outside the community, what happened to them? They were brought into the community of faith, or I should say, the community of, of Israel. So let me respond to this era of self-satisfying, individualistic Christianity. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14. Through to 18. Obviously, part of a greater uh, section or or passage uh, dealing with the importance of the body as a unified whole. Look at verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it less any part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where with the sense of smell be I move the verb to the end rather than put it in the middle but as it is God arranged the members in the body each one of them as he chose. It is interesting that Paul uses almost this insignificant part of the body as compared to the most crucial part of the body your eye is absolutely crucial to the function of the body and if the ear says well you know what I am not the eye so I don't need to be at church I, I don't need to be there because I'm a small fry in the pan there are two things to note in these verses number one The interdependent relationship of the saints, verse 14 to 17. And number two, the indispensable freedom of God. Verse 14 to 17 shows interdependency of one another upon each other. The child of God is by nature a communal being. Any person saved that has the philosophy that he is an individual independent of a greater community must check his salvation. You are saved to be part of the body of Jesus Christ, and that, yes, is universal, but that salvation is demonstrated in fellowship or commitment to local bodies. They desire. Those who are saved, they desire fellowship, but also the growth and the benefit of others. This is what Paul is dealing with here. Sinful, self-pleasing individualism saturated the church in Corinth. How do we know that? Paul, prior to this, had to deal with the problem of spiritual gifts. One of the major problems, if you go back, not, not, you don't have to turn there, but if you go back to chapter 10, is this whole idea that I have a, a greater gift and you have a lesser gift. I've got the, the more prophetic word, I have the, the gift of tongues, I have the sign and visible gifts, and you, all you do is serve. you below me. So, I don't need you, but you need me. That's individualistic. So Paul deals with this dilemma in the church and how does he resolve it? Well he points to the unified nature of the body and the interdependency of the body. There is one body. Every church is a unified whole. All that the church needs is given by God to that church for the functioning of that body. Now there may be some gifts that is not given to a specific church. But all that that church needs has been given to that church in the individuals given to that church every person is dependent upon another and that's his point you cannot say i'm a member of a lesser function in the church and so i am not important or i am a member of the more important functions of the church so therefore i am not important did we not see yesterday the importance of the what we may think as the lesser functions of a, an event, um, some of you may know about that. But tea and coffee is an important function in the, the life of Living Hope Bible Church. Why on earth would we not have tea and coffee at any event? That that's beyond me, right? <laughs> and then he comes in with tea and coffee. Amen Brother the believer does not exist for himself. The whole discussion on gifts is use your gift for the benefit of others, not for the benefit of self. I'm not going to go into the detail of First Corinthians chapter 12 through to 14. But you get the picture. The gifts were given to the body so that the body could serve itself. Every believer has been given to the body not so that the believer serves him or herself, but so that that believer could serve another believer, or I should say, the greater body. Every gift is essential in the body. Every believer, therefore, is essential to the body. Which means that if a believer is in a church and does not commit to the degree where they are serving in that body, they do not contribute to the growth and the edification and the benefit of other saints in the body. God gives every stone a function as he builds his church. Secondly, not only is there interdependency upon one another, but there's the absolute freedom of God to move people to whatever position he chooses. God is sovereignly free to choose to give you whatever gift he gives you. Again, look at verse 18. But as it is, God arranged, God arranged. Arranged the members, plural, in the body, singular, each one of them, plural, as he chose, singular, he chooses where the members go. Each one of you have been selected and, and chosen by God to have a function in this church. If you are a member of this church or becoming a member of this church, the word arrange means to set in place, to assign, or to appoint. If you could imagine, God is taking the the bricks and laying down one upon the other. You belong here, you belong there. The wall is not complete, but he's filling it in. And and those who are in the bottom rung may never be seen on top. They may never be seen, but they are essential. Those in the middle... They may never be heard by those who are at the bottom or those who are on top, but they are essential. They keep the the wall, you you get the imagery, right? The wall together from falling. The word chose is very interesting here. It's actually the word for will or purpose. In English, it is often translated as desire. Demonstrates God's divine wish. Doesn't mean It's always obeyed. God gifts. God chooses. But they are disobedient believers. Who do not fulfill the giftedness that God has given to them. This is what Paul has to deal with in the church of Corinth. They wanted their own way. Instead of submitting to God's will. And God's giving of the function to that specific church. They said, ah. I don't want that. I want tongues. I want prophecy. Because those are the sign gifts. I want to lay hands on people. Give me some of that. Don't give me the service stuff. That's not for me. They neglected the minor services. Because they desired the more visible gifts. We should be thankful that at Living Hope. God has given us ladies who are desirous to serve the body. There are many functions that they go unmentioned. A lot of the saints, the, the female saints, go unmentioned. We we, we gave, give thanks to the Lord for the men who serve and sometimes they are more visible. But a lot of the time, the reason why the, the events are successful is because of the women serving us. We have to be thankful that the Lord has gifted us so many women who are willing to help God's people and serve them. Individualism in worship and the church disrupts unity. That's Paul's point. You can't have individualism and community service. You understand what I mean by that? You can't be an individual separating yourself from the body of Jesus Christ... And be part of a community that is faithfully wanting to honor the Lord by serving one another. One of the most common words that occurs in Paul's letters is serve. The outworking of our worship must be demonstrated in how we serve God's people. Now connected to this idea of individualism connected to this idea of existentialism, is deconstructionism. I know it's a big word, but you can understand the aspect of that word in deconstruct, right? You know what that means. Most kids are very good at deconstructing. At the foundation of existentialism and postmodernism is this philosophy of deconstructionism. Under this canopy, I'm going to deal with two things, and I will... um, deal with it back to back. I won't give it to you in point form, but you will know that I've, I've dealt with it. The effects of deconstructionism and the dangers of deconstructionism. What is deconstruction? deconstructionism? As its name suggests, deconstructionism has to do with something that is broken down, part one, but also reconstructed. So there's the breaking down, the dismantling, and then the reconstruction or rebuilding. Keep that in mind. In Christianity, it relates primarily to the breaking down of the text and the rebuilding of the understanding of the text. Dr. P. Hendricks from the University of South Africa writes, quote, What most characterized... Deconstructionism is the notion of textuality in view of language, not only in books, but in speech and in culture, especially the written language. He goes on to say, Its major objective is to take the text apart. To take the text apart. And point out the behavior of figurative language, Following which the elements are put back together in a totally different way. End quote. That is the substance of what deconstructionism is. You take the text, you break it up from its formal understanding, and you rebuild it in such a way that the formal way in which it was understood is unrecognizable. A new meaning, a new sense, and a new way to move forward. Which means that established truths must not only be reevaluated but completely reconstructed. See, the goal is an entirely new construction or building. Rather than going back over old, archaic, as they say, beliefs or systems. We need something new. You see it in the language of we need a better. Way. We need a new thing or new way. In deconstruction, the text is always interpreted in a negative way. You always approach the text with a suspicion that it's not interpreted correctly. You see this a lot in scholarly work. This is why truths that have been established for centuries are being challenged today. Capitulated on a number of Mm -hmm. fronts and then reconstructed to mean something different. Basic propositions about church life, church leadership, gender roles in the church and in in leadership, the roles of men, the roles of women. The function of worship to the extent of the songs that we sing no longer are taken for granted because it is viewed through the lens of oppression and racism. In this worldview, nothing can be trusted. Ever heard the statement question everything, challenge everything, accept nothing, challenge everything? Mm. You know where that comes from. Is this whole idea of deconstructionism. It builds in the Christian world an element of theological suspicion. Those of you who have been a long time on the road may have noticed today a lot of theology that we have believed is now suspicious suddenly. So we don't believe that anymore. God is no longer masculine. We don't call him father anymore. It's mother, or she, or her. In fact, one Christian singer said, you can call him whatever you want. I'm not offended by that. Really? In the scientific world, we do want to question everything and challenge everything, because that's what science is, right? Well, not during COVID, but that is what science is. But in Christianity... We should believe the truths that have been established for centuries. God didn't change his mind. Oh, maybe I was wrong about women. Maybe they are not the weaker vessel, not in in strength, but in dependence. All structures, including church, is viewed with suspicion. It is viewed with the idea that it's a social construct. Now, think about this. If church, church leadership, the role of men in the home is viewed as a social construct, then what can we do with it? Reconstruct it to mean whatever we want to. And that is what is happening. The destabilization of worship worship is not some fringe element but it is part of the greater work of the enemy to undermine the truth. Understand, that is what is taking place. The extreme of emotionalism, existentialism, as you will see, experience is all a devilish attack on the sufficiency of God's word. The dismantling of transcendence traditional modes of thought and values or ways all relate to truth now how does this relate to worship this is a slow escalating process of eroding the truth followed by a reconstruction of an alternate truth modern songs are starting to reflect that that is true More than that, emotionalism and sentimentalism, groupthink and individualism, I still don't understand how that works, but how the two works, groupthink and individualism, have all contributed to the breakdown of the circuit breaker of discernment. Without discernment, without having a discerning spirit or mind, you are open to all manner of abuse. That is what has taken place in worship. For example, Charlie Dates, one of the writers on of the Gospel Coalition, um, one of the he used to be, uh, I think he's left now, contributors, he's a progressive uh, Baptist pastor, says, in a quote, back sacred music is no longer produced to capture the black Christian experience in America, end quote. wait, 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 wait. wait. What is a black christian? What is a colored christian? What is a white christian? There is no such thing. You are a christ follower, period. Race does not qualify your christianity and it should never qualify who you are. You are not black forward slash christian. You are Christian, Christ follower. He goes on to say the majority culture have appropriated it and explained that the the black sacred music is salvific, is a salvific instrument. Now notice if it is lost, black sacred music, if it is lost. Black Christians will have lost their witness in the world. Wow. I don't know if you get that. So connected to our witness in the world is how much we appreciate and elevate black sacred music. If you take that away, that Christian has no longer a witness in the world. I thought that we are witnesses of Jesus Christ. I thought that we are there because of his authority. This is an attack on biblical truth. I thought that it is the gospel that saves and not the slave song that saves. You can see how worship is being shaped into a cultural element. So why is this important? Because worship songs have become more about sales rather than the sanctity in worship. More and more Jesus, Lord, Christ, holiness, God's attributes are disappearing from our songs. You can do what I did. I took the number one downloaded CCLI song. It is called Waymaker. That sounds like a movie, Waymaker. I'm going to quote part of the song. I don't know if you know it, I don't know it, I just I, I read the, the lyrics. You are here moving in our midst, I worship you, I worship you. You are here working in this place, I worship you, I worship you. You are Waymaker, Miracle Worker, Promise Keeper. Light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. I don't know what you think about that. One word in that entire song relates to God. Everything else can be about any other God. Just God. And even that word can be any other God. There is nothing about God's infinite worth, God's sovereign attributes, God's divine nature, God's holiness. This is all about what God is doing for us. What he's come to do in our presence. So I went ahead to look at the Afrikaans' number one hit. I'm going to read it. Die Heere is my veste. Die Heere is my kracht. Die Heere is my bron. I'm going to need some translation there. En hy is my redding. Die een op wie ek waag, die Heere is my voorspoed. Hy sal my voorsien, soos a pa sorg vir sy kinders, Hier me, hier hy, hy meer as wat ek ooit so kan verdien. It's better than the English one. But still very short of who God is. It's what good God is doing for us. God has been replaced by us. All that we hear about God is what he is doing on our behalf. And yes, we want to sing about the redemption of Christ and our salvation. Yes, by all means, we can sing about that. But this is not about that. It's what God is doing to make my life better. I, I am tris- tremendously encouraged by our worship team. They not only challenge the songs, not in the sense that they want more charismatic, so- charismatic songs, they want less, get rid of these guys. But they also challenge the worship leaders, and I'm thankful for that. They give them a hard time. Why are we singing the song? Did you, did you read these lyrics? Which is a good thing. Christian rapper Lecrae, for those of you who are in the Christian rap world, I'm going to burst your bubble. Christian rapper Lecrae said, quote, deconstruction is not a bad thing. If it leads to reconstruction, sometimes you have to demolish a building. Old archaic ways is what he meant. That is mold infested and build something else on that foundation, something new. We are not getting rid of the foundation because the foundation is Christ. Yes, true. Amen. But we are building on the foundation, not tearing the foundation, it down, but tearing down some things that were unnecessary. He's talking about what he calls American Christianity because it's been run and ruined, in his words, by white people. So let's write songs that reflect Blackness in worship. That is what we are getting in the selection of songs. We want more black representation in worship. Stop the wokeness in worship. Please. We don't select a song by looking at the color of the skin. We select a song based on the theology that it presents. Because worship is not about you or your skin color. It's about God. So everything today in the church must be revisited through the lens of the black person's struggle. I'm not racist because I'm half black. Although some black people may take offense to that. The reason I say that is because we all come from one Adam. One race. We are one. And so we are various shades of one color tone. White people are just a little bit lighter than black people. But they're not white. They, they're light brown, really light brown. There's something wrong. But anyway, they're really... For those of you who don't know, I'm, I'm married to a white person, so I can't say that. <laughs> the standard is actually not black or white, but colored. Thank you. Amen. Praise the Lord. <laughs> On a more serious note, Previously, passive association meant very little. Do you understand what that meant? By, by just saying, oh I'm listening to this guy, even though he has bad theology, I like this one song. That's passive association. Now, however, standing with them means standing against the truth, because standing with them means standing against the truth. Because they are opposing the truth. Today, truth is set aside for the sake of someone's feelings. Whereas emotionalism is willing to avoid the truth and candy coat the truth to make it more appealing to the sinner, Christian postmodernist existentialism says we don't like the fact that you claim truth because you've got the wrong skin color. You can't claim truth. So we will break down that truth and, and recreate a new truth that suits us. The problem is that we can never separate the truth from Christ or worship. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. <clears throat> it is believed that the 16 is actually an ancient or Christian old Christian hymn. I'm going to read it. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. Listen to the song. Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. You know exactly who it's talking about. The majesty of Jesus Christ manifested in a song. But look up a couple of verses. Verse 14. I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. The church, a pillar and buttress of the truth. You cannot remove the truth from worship or Christ. If you remove the truth in any element, you do not have a church. That's how dangerous the removal of the truth is. This is why. Paul writes in the very next section. Chapter 4. That those who have departed from the truth. Demonstrate their departure from the truth. In their immoral lives. Because they are not governed by the truth any longer. Therefore. Therefore. Often in emotionally driven, driven, truth absent churches, immorality runs havoc. False teachers are immoral people. That's not me that says that. The Bible says that. You will know them by their lives or their fruits or the, the, the immorality that they spew. How many times have we not heard of false teachers who have disqualified themselves by illegitimate relationships and then they end up back into um, uh, into ministry because now the demon has been driven out. So they, they cleared. It's like a vaccine. They're they okay now because they, they got the spiritual shot. One of the key signs of a false church and of false teachers is that immorality permeates their lives. We must be awake to the poison of false teaching, even in Christian contemporary music. Listen to Puritan Thomas Brooke. He says, quote, a poisonous pearl is nevertheless a word poisonous, because it is gilded over with gold. I love that. It is still poison, even if you dash a little bit off What's that fairy called? Tinkerbell gold dust on it. It looks beautiful, but it is poisonous. He goes on to say, No is a wolf never a word less a wolf, because it has put on sheep's skin. It's still a wolf. Looks good, but it's still dangerous. No is the devil never a a less a devil, because he appears sometimes as an angel of light. Neither is sin any word less filthy and abominable, by it's being painted over with virtuous color just because you appear to be good and right on the outside doesn't mean you are not immoral end quote it is not to, enough to say that it has some truth even demons believe in some truth and sound some truth poison is poison Even if you close your eyes and say, "Oh, I I believe this is guava juice. It is still, some of you probably don't drink guava juice, so you don't know what it is. You're missing out on life. John MacArthur in The Truth War says, quote, Truth exists outside of us and remains the same regardless of how we may perceive it. This is the antithesis to deconstructionism. Truth by definition is as fixed and constant as God is immutable, quote. You cannot change truth. The reality is that Christianity is most, it is the most intolerant religion on the globe. Because we alone claim to have the only way to God and is Jesus Christ. We say every other way is wrong. There is not multiple roads that leads to God. We say that there are no other ways of worshiping God. There is one way and he defines it. And I'll get to that in a moment's time. There is worship that is biblical and there is worship that is extra biblical outside of the scriptures. Worship that is outside of the scriptures is worship that ignores the truth. Truth is an indispensable guide that must permeate our worship. In postmodern Christian existentialism, we are moving away from truth rather than honoring it. Why does it matter? This is why. Because worship fundamentally is a dissemination of the truth. Whether it is in preaching or praying singing whatever we do it's a dissemination of the truth even the breaking of bread we declare forth his death until the day he comes not only the sacrifice but the future return as well worship by nature demonstrates and disseminates truth but if truth is removed from worship do you still have worship The answer is no. That's why it matters. Paul in Colossians chapter 3, 16 says, we ought to encourage and admonish one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. That is singing, by the way. So how then can you admonish and and encourage one another if the truth is not the thing that does it? There are certain songs that I read through this week that sounds like somebody is writing to his best friend or even his wife. It it shocks me that we are pleased to see things that, yes, it's it's supposed to be an expression of love, but it's void of truth. When truth is deconstructed and reconstructed to mean something else, no matter how sincere the worship Their worship is not. So not only are we to avoid the extreme of existentialism, we should also avoid the extreme of experience. Connected to experience is pragmatism, but I won't go along that route because there's just too much to cover. I'll, I'll put it in the booklet that we are writing. Two different kinds of experiences, and I'll give it to you in brief. There's the active pursuit of experience and there's the passive expectation in experience. Generally, it's only the active pursuit that we, we we think about, but there's also the more subtle evangelical form of experience. That is the passive expectation. And that one I will just mention and I won't come back to it. The passive expectation is when you want to have an encounter in preaching. So you come to church not to be fed and encouraged. You want to feel something needs to move you while you're sitting there. Now, I know I speak very passionately, but I can also be very boring. I know that. I've been told that quite a few times, and that's okay. I I thank you for the encouragement. (laughs) Carl Hargrove said in one of the chapels at seminary, When the word of God is opened, you listen. That is it. Sometimes I know that you have boring preachers, but it's still the word of God. You give attention to the word. If it's faithfully preached, adequately exposited, you give attention to God speaking in his word. doesn't matter how boring the guy is, it is still God speaking. Because it is he who chooses to put the giftedness in the person. And sometimes he gives that person a very dead voice. Praise the Lord for that. So that the honor is not in the person, but the glory belongs to God. So that is the passive expectation. You come to church to, to, to be ministered to in a very special way through the preaching of the word. The active pursuit is a little bit more difficult. In his book, Charismatic Chaos, and I encourage all of you to get a copy. Buy an extra one because you may want to give it to somebody. They will not be your friend after that, but. John MacArthur shares this letter, and I found it to be very apt in what we are dealing with. This lady says to him, quote, you resort to Greek translations and fancy words to explain away what the Holy Spirit is doing in the church today. Let me give you a piece of advice. You already know, it's bad after that. That might just save you from the wrath of the Almighty God. Put away your Bible and your books and stop studying. (laughs) Sure. Ask the Holy Spirit to come upon you and give you the tongue, the gift of tongues. Here's the main point. You have no right to question something you have never experienced. End quote. That sums up pretty much the active pursuit of experience. Just in that one line. You have no right to judge anybody if you did not experience. Stop with the theology. Let's just be practical and, and ride the wave of the Spirit. You need to feel your way through the Christian walk. The fundamental problem with this is that experience is trumping truth. What is more important to the individual is not what the Bible says, but what they have gone through. Regardless of what the Bible may say, you will always counter it because you've experienced something different. One of the contributing factors to the active pursuit of experience is a misunderstanding of the book of Acts. And I will briefly just mention this. There are four episodes of the demonstration of the Spirit by the baptism of the uh, Spirit. Chapter 2, uh, chapter 8, chapter 10 and chapter what's it 19? nineteen? 19. Often forgotten in these demonstrations is that there were multiple churches that started in some of those areas. But it's always the first church that gets the demonstration. Not all of them. And, And we just, we read over that. We forget that. Paul goes and the first church gets the demonstration. I think it's Ephesus. And none of the other sister churches get the demonstration. All four of these include a different group. You go from Jews only to Samaritans to Gentiles and then the outermost parts where Paul preaches now away from the, 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 um, where the Jews were. These questions are never adequately answered. Acts is a historical book. It records events as they are happening. It's not telling us what to do, it's telling us how it has been done. Whereas the epistles tell us what to do, and there are things in the epistles that we don't do. But it tells us, most commonly, what you should be doing. That's the difference between reading Romans onwards and reading the book of Acts, or I should say the gospel in Acts. Because the gospel and Acts are narrative, they tell us how the history of the church came about. Whereas Romans forward tells us what the church should be doing post the establishment of the church. Four things to remember, three things to remember about the experiences in Acts. Number one, the saints never pursue the experience. It always happens to them as a sovereign independent demonstration of God upon a certain group. They're never running after it. It is God that gives it to them. Secondly, all the events regarding the pouring out of the Spirit, or the speaking in tongues, took place with an apostle present. Number three, Acts is a transitional book. Remember that. Acts is descriptive and not prescriptive. What is the danger of experience? Religious experience is not a gauge in an encounter with God. That is really dangerous. You may have experienced something, but it may not have been with God. Acts chapter 17, you don't have to go to that, I'll mention it. Acts chapter 17, Paul says, And I perceive that you are religious people. With a multiplicity of gods. And he corrects the understanding of who God is. Who is the creator of all things. The starting point is who God is as creator. Therefore you submit to him as Lord. So having a religious experience does not equal having an experience with the true and the living God. We are surprised by this. But we often forget that Satan... Can present himself as an angel of what? Light. Second Corinthians eleven fourteen. The father of lies comes and presents himself as one who presents the truth. Do you not think that it's possible for him to create a counterfeit experience and give you an experience in a counterfeit religion? So that you will never see the light of the glory of God in the gospel. Do not be deceived. It is not beyond the power of the enemy to manufacture a counterfeit religion to give counterfeit experiences. Secondly, not only is it that it could be false, but secondly... The experience becomes the reality and the authority. The experience becomes the lens through which they see life and the measurement by which they measure everything in life, both religiously and personally. Well, you can't tell me because I experienced it. In this framework, truth, if it opposes that experience, does not make sense to them. Doesn't matter how much you explain it, it will not make sense to them. Why? Because the authority is what? The experience. As a result, they distrust people who question the experience. Often woven into this fear of acknowledging, yeah, it may not be true, is that they or their family or the churches they grew up in may have been wrong. Or may have been misled or engaging in some sort of godless worship. It's hard to acknowledge that. For those of us, and I put myself in this category, who have been delivered from the clutch, or I should say the, 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 the claws of experiential worship. We can now see the truth and, and, and value the experience with scripture over the experience of a moment. Because we now see how the truth changes our lives and how that moment did not change our life. I can speak because I was there. And I can say that I said what you guys were saying, that I've experienced it. So don't tell me about not speaking in tongues because I was there, pursuing it just as much as you are. But God delivered us, I should say me, from that life and caused me to see the glory of the gospel In Jesus Christ, in the scripture, that switched the light on. Not any one of those experiences did. Okay, I'm gonna give you two mountains of experience in the next four minutes. Two mountains. First in Exodus 34, the next will be in Matthew 19. You'll remember this because it's two mountains. And it's related because there's one individual who's in both. Exodus 34, I'll only read a couple of verses here to give you the backdrop. In chapter 33 verse 18 um, and following, Moses asked the Lord to show him his glory. Show me your glory. Look at verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you and, and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. I will declare my name and I will reveal myself to be the sovereign one. I will show mercy to whom I will and I will harden whom I will. Then in chapter 34, look at verse, is it 19? Verse, let me find it. Verse 6. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped Moses' mountaintop experience was not seeing the vision. His response in worship was hearing the proclamation of who God is. Moses' response to the truth of who God is. There's two things that is really significant here. God places him in a rock and passes past the rock. So the rock is the protection. Proclamation and protection. I should say provision and protection in this rock. If you go to Deuteronomy, we won't go there, but in chapter 32 and 34, Moses revisits this experience. And he says, the rock, the Lord, the rock, is merciful, gracious, steadfast. Where does he get that language from? The moment in the rock. What Moses recollects from this moment is not the vision that he sees of God, but the truth proclaimed by God. Because the experience was not the vision, but the truth proclaimed. Go to Matthew 19. Sorry, 17. Look at verse 2. And he was transfigured before them. This is Peter, James, and John. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them and Moses, he was on the other mountain, he's here again. And Elijah talking with him. And Peter said, Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, he was still speaking when, behold, God shut him up. He was still rambling on, and God said, Hey, hey, hey. this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. What did they respond to? Not the vision of the glory and the majesty of Jesus as magnificent as it was. It was the word that was proclaimed and they fell down. On both episodes, the two mountain experiences, what is the most significant thing that that these guys remember? It is the truth. How do I know that? If you go to Peter, uh, to, to Peter, Chapter one. Peter recalls this event. Notice in verse sixteen it says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I was there. I experienced it. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves Heard this very voice. Born from heaven. For we were with him on that holy mountain. What is he recalling? Not the experience per se. But the declaration and the truth declared. About who Jesus really is. But notice verse 19. And we have the prophetic word. More fully confirmed. As great as the experience was. There is something even better than that. What is it? The word of God. The truth proclaimed in the prophetic word. Scripture tells us that the experience is not the focus. Never was. But the truth revealed in the vision is the focus. I wonder If you can remember back in your memories how many times you had a moment with Jesus and it was about a cup of tea or playing in the water and and, and, and the vision you saw was this glorious open expanse of heaven. But there was no truth revealed. Oftentimes when you hear these visions, there is nothing said to the individual. Why? Because God is not giving any more new truths. If he is, if you're coming up with visions from God, that is not from God. God has said all he needed to say. It is ended. There's nothing more that anyone has to add to the words of scripture. Is there any passage that relates... Worship to truth. Yes, John chapter 4. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. God's standard for worship are these two things. Spirit and and truth. I believe this is the Holy Spirit because in 1 John, I think it's chapter 2, maybe verse 14, I forget the passage. He uses the same language and it is spirit and truth. And there it is the Holy Spirit whom God has given us. Same language, same meaning. So then God sets the standard for what true worship is. Spirit and truth. What is John talking about? Sorry, what is Jesus talking about here? The location of worship. Remember that, the location of worship. Not just the standard. Her her question to Jesus is, well where is it going to take place? And Jesus says, not here at uh, Mount Gerizim or on Mount Jerusalem. But where the Spirit is and where the truth is. That's where true worship will take place. Let's think through that. Wherever the Spirit is, there the truth will be. Wherever the truth is proclaimed, there the Spirit is. Wherever the Spirit is and where the truth is proclaimed, there true worship be is and must exist if there is just spirit and no truth there is no worship if there is just truth and no spirit there is no worship both are required for the location of worship anything less is idolatry let me close in a word of prayer father we thank you that you set the standard and the means through which we have to worship Forgive us because for many years, Lord, some of us have been misled and have wandered along a path that is not focused on you but upon us. We have been idolaters for many years of our lives, focusing on things that does not honor you. Forgive us, Lord. We pray for those who are captivated in the realm of experience. Lord, deliver them. Help them to see the necessity of truth and how your word is able to change their lives. Experience does not, but the truth does. Be patient with us, Lord. There's so many things we need to learn and so many things we have to unlearn. We pray for grace and mercy. and Thank you again for the clarity of your word. Help us to not only see it, but to obey it. That you may be honored and glorified in our lives for your glory. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.